Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. An optimist is a person who tends to be hopeful and confident about the future and the success of something. People who are optimists tend to see the positive things more than negatives, and that often helps them to achieve what they want. Optimists are most often action takers, and even if there are some negative indicators, they will close an eye for it or plan to figure it out later. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, that is uh, from a video I picked up off YouTube from the productivity guy with his definition of optimism. And that explains why Mark Anderson's new manifesto on techno-optimism is so sure that everything is going to work out fine because we'll just figure it out later. But can we wait that long? And can optimists just cast aside those who disagree as enemies of optimism, which is just going to make life worse for everyone? So we dissect the techno-optimist manifesto this week on the Debanking Economics podcast. Well, Mark Anderson is an American software engineer who also helped to write the web browser Mosaic, and then he went on to become co-founder of Netscape. He's now a partner in the Silicon Valley venture capital firm, Anderson Horowitz. He's worth about $1.8 billion uh, US dollars, apparently. And he wrote a blog piece recently called The Techno-Optimist Manifesto, which argues that we are a species that's been around 300,000 300, years, and we've found a way to adapt and develop. So why wouldn't we keep on doing that? So yeah, interesting blog piece. Steve's read it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this. I mean, some of it is right, isn't it? In that we have. I mean, clearly, mankind keeps on adapting. There's always that danger, though, uh, that if you always assume that you're always going to adapt, what happens on the day that you don't? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's it's it was a weird thing to read because you know I'm I'm clearly in my own way I'm a, I'm a techno optimist, but I want to be a techno realist as well. So. Uh, and what what I found was a mixture of realism and optimism and outright bloody fantasy in some parts of it. And I thought, you know, uh, it, 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 we only, the only way we're going to survive, in my you know, opinion, in the very long term, is to become a technological species that can actually leave its own planet and take life with it. Because uh, as far as we've seen in the universe, there isn't, uh, you know, there are, certainly aren't many other spots that are, that are like Earth. In fact, so the current count of places like Earth is one. Uh, and we know, if you know your technology, you know that in about uh, something the order of, you know, between hundreds of millions and uh, a billion or so years, the Earth will be absorbed by the expanding sun. So if we don't do something to get uh, life off this planet, then there isn't going to be life 
uh, whether human or any other type. Uh, That's in, quite a long-term view you're taking. This yeah, well, you have to. I mean, if we, if we call ourselves <laughs> intelligent, we don't we don't have a 30-year time. I mean, this is one moment where you can define the finance sector as stupid. What is their time horizon? The, the quarterly report Next week. five years. I'm sorry. We've got to think longer than that. So, yeah. Yeah. We're done. Well, it's we... the next trade, actually, for most people, isn't it? Actually, in reality, it's uh, yeah. uh, it's it's split-second decisions. But isn't part of the problem as well? I mean, the, the human population has always been growing. So if you believe that, you know, as he does, that uh, it, it's all about growth, you know, that uh, if you don't have growth, you've got stagnation, uh, and technology is going to help that growth. But hasn't the issue being or the benefit being that the population if we're looking for growth the population has always grown so i mean you can grow in two ways like one you can become more productive with a you know zero population you just increase productivity and so you know the economy grows on that basis and we'll, you know, we can discuss whether economic growth is a good thing or a bad thing but i mean if if that's the end goal that the the opposite of that is, is stagnation um then Productivity and population growth. Now, the population isn't growing, and neither is productivity anymore. So is technology really going to fix that? It's not going to fix the, the population issue, because obviously uh, the wealthier people become, uh, the less they have sex, or the, the more protected they are when they have it. Yeah, I mean, it, this is why I say it's a, it's a mixture of uh, you know things I can agree with and things I almost puked at, uh, because... Um, in this, you know, Musk apparently has the same attitude. We can have, you know, 100 million, 100 billion people on this planet. We've kind of got 8 billion. Um, there, there have been exp- ex- you know, periods in the past where, we've, where numbers have plunged. I think we lost about something like 30% of the human population during the Black Plague. There was a, a previous event which goes right back into the early, you know, a few tens of thousands of years after the evolution of humanity, where we were reduced to a relative handful of survivors on the coast, apparently on the coast of of, of South Africa. Um, so it, is, it hasn't been entirely smooth progress, but the incredible acceleration of population took about in the 1800s, and that specifically reflects the Industrial Revolution and the application of technology to food. Uh, that's all fine, but we, you know, if you if you if you really are intelligent, you don't just think you don't think you're the only person in the room. And what you got what I got out of this was he said absolutely no consideration of what's happening to the other life forms on the planet. And without the other life forms, we don't exist. So the the lack of awareness of the web of life, I think, was a was a it was a glaringly obvious thing in his argument. I and mean, if you don't have that awareness, then you're not you're not a techno. You're you're a God knows what the what's the alternative? Supre- uh, well, you're God. Uh, they, well, you're supremist, aren't you? you, you yeah. You're just thinking that uh, it's a survival of our species against all others, which you know, obviously, uh, everything is dependent on everything else. So that doesn't work. Yeah, you've got. But also, yeah. I, I also wonder whether there's just a bit of uh, American superiority sneaking. Oh, through never, this as well. In, never. Well, <laughs> because if you are in Silicon Valley as, uh, you know, in, investing in startups that are growing and making lots of money, you are going to get a slightly unbalanced picture. And if you look at, you know, productivity growth, uh, I mean, it's still there in the United States. You look elsewhere, uh, you know, if you allow for inflation uh, in many places, you know, it, you know, productivity peaked, what, 10 years ago? In Australia, I think it peaked around 2012. It's well down on that peak now, even if, we, you know, before we adjust for inflation. Uh, but for the USA, for whatever reason, if we, if we measure productivity, it's not a great measure, but GDP per capita, 
uh, it continues to rise. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it, it, it seems that America is immune to this slowdown, but it's happening everywhere else. Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's very badly measured. I mean, the, we certainly have more output per, per capita. But we we also therefore have more waste per capita, and the the problem that like he actually derided the limits to growth part of the way through the the publication, um, and 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 I just found so much uh, you know, op- optimism shouldn't mean you think you can defy the laws of physics. Okay, you can use the laws of physics, uh, and that's where I, I think you should talk a bit more to his mate Elon, even though Elon's about in this summer. I think he's off with the pharaohs on this one as well. Um, but I remember there's a T-shirt I saw Elon wearing at one stage saying, "There are laws of phys- physics; everything else is negotiable." And the, he's talking as if sheer optimism can overcome the laws of laws of thermodynamics, which you cannot do. And and that's why I, I found this crazy mixture of of uh, you know, accurate characterizations of the human species and the human nature, uh, but acting like something in a Walt Disney movie where you can wave your wand and all the problems disappear. And, uh, you know, that, that so is So the just, law of thermo- thermodynamics, you're saying is. that because if you keep on growing, you're, you're, you're going to, inc- however much you try and control it, you are going to continue to increase waste. Yeah, and that's an immutable law that can't be fixed. And that's like the classic illustration that was given by Tom Murphy, the physicist Tom Murphy, when he sat next to a a well-respected conventional economist uh, back about ten, fifteen years ago, and uh, and he pointed out that this, the sheer act of using energy, and there's a huge amount of discussion of energy in Andreessen's post as well, the sheer act of using energy to 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 create work. By the second law of thermodynamics, necessarily generates waste. And Murphy's point was that if we continue growing at a rate which is regarded as just the bare minimum to avoid rising unemployment, which is about 2.3% growth per capita per annum, uh, in 400 years, by the second law of thermodynamics alone, nothing to do with global warming, nothing to do with what's coming in from the sun, et cetera, et cetera. Simply the heat, the waste heat we generate, that waste heat would generate would raise the average surface temperature of the planet to 100 degrees Celsius. Now, you know, that ain't going to happen because by the time we got to 30 degrees uh, as an average temperature, we'd all die anyway. Uh, but that that is the absolute limit. So we've got 400 years of potential growth on this planet until we and until our growth makes life impossible on the planet. So the only way you can actually combine his techno optimism with a potential future is to say, well, we've got to get off the planet and we've got off the planet before we do so much damage to its biosphere that we can't build the technology that he's fantasizing about us creating. Well the simple way of understanding that, isn't it, is that cities are warmer than the country. Because we've got a lot of it, you know, a lot of energy has been created in those cities, and so the ambient temperature of those cities is way higher than it is in uh, in, in in country areas, because we are creating. Yeah, cells. that's that's a, that's certainly a nice little analogy. I mean, uh, you, you know, if you're going to generate that for an average, then of course, way way back now, before you know, 400 years before that you know, terminal point of 
the boiling temperature of water. Um, we have risen the temperature of areas where industrial activity occurs in really concentrated ways versus, you know, where it's not happening at all uh, quite substantially. So, yeah, that alone is a point that we, you know, we, can't, we can't keep meeting like this. There has to be a point where if you're going to be a techno-optimist, then an essential condition is to get off the planet before you before you reach anywhere near that point. Right. Okay. But if the if if the idea is that technology can solve anything, then you've got to understand what the problem is. So if we if we say, well, this is fantastic, we are becoming more productive and we're using, you know, GDP per capita as an example of the measure, or just, you know, the a, a country's GDP as a whole and seeing how that's increasing and saying, well, that's great because we are we are producing more now, we're seeing growth and so much of our capitalist system is based on that growth. Surely within those numbers, a starting point would be to say within those GDP numbers, we've got to include all the negative externalities. So GDP Mm. has got to include pollution levels as much as it includes, you know, how much revenue is generated. If, well, if there's a difficulty there because if you do too much of that, you because of the second law again, you, you you establish everything as negative. Any doing any work generates more waste than you generate order out of that out of that work. So you you know I think to some extent you can't incorporate things, but you've got to be aware of them and you've got to say okay what what conditions do they impose upon us which are, are troubling? And a part of me kept on coming back to the thought that if you're a techno if you're a technology person at all. And you're thinking about time. You've got to be thinking in terms of differential equations, rates of change over time. Uh, and for a set of in, uh, differential equations, one essential thing is where are you starting from? And if your initial conditions are in a point where, if you progress from here, um, you are going to break the system down before you get uh, to a, to a um, you know, to be able to continue growing indefinitely. So the, you, there's no awareness of the initial conditions he's got there. If he wrote this thing 50 or 60 years ago uh, and then said, well, let's now work out our trajectory and can we continue this path without breaking the system, then I would have, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have been as disappointed by what I, I read instead as I was this time because there are fairly good arguments from the climate science end of the world that we've, you know, we've pushed ourselves into such a corner that if we keep on going at the current rate of growth that we're, we're currently experiencing, we're talking decades until we cause the such climate catastrophes that the, the, there'll be no possibility for sedentary civilization. And you've got to have a sedentary civilization with factories that can perform in, uh, indefinitely and be improved to be able to have the sort of techno-optimism that he's He's full of. Well, his techno-optimism uh, yeah. is, is entirely driven by energy, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's acknowledged the fact that to do all of this, we need yeah, more, loads more energy. The more energy we have, yeah. the more people we can have, the better everyone's lives will be, is basically what he's saying. We should raise everyone to the energy consumption level that we have now. So, you know, developing countries should be using as much as the Western world. Then we increase our energy 1,000 times, he's saying. Uh, and we're going to do that because we're going to have silver bullets like nuclear fusion, for example. So uh, that is going to be our saviour, and that is going to allow us to go into this brave new world where technology gives us a untold wealth for everybody across the planet. Yeah, which will be at a temperature of 150 degrees Celsius. <laughs> this is the, this is the thing that I just for Christ's sake have some perspective, mate. I mean, be optimistic by all means, but ground yourself in what 
are the, the are the physical laws of the universe, and then as they apply to the part of the universe we're occupying, and that level of energy increase is just ridiculous uh, in terms of the of the capacity of the planet to absorb that amount of heat. And that's what I found. It was definitely a case of, if you quote uh, Phil Murawski on this point, it was definitely more heat than light. But, I mean, uh, it's interesting that at least he's acknowledging that to do to see this growth, we need more energy. I mean, there are people who go, no, we yeah. will de- yeah. decouple, we'll do more with less. At least he's saying, yeah, no, we, that, need, that- we need to do more with more. And then that's and that's partly why I said it's not entirely like it's not like reading William Nordhaus, for example. Mm. Uh, at least there's a bit of reload that you need energy to do these things. But then, okay, if you use energy, you're going to have waste. How much can the environment into which you're dumping that waste cope? I'm sorry. Uh, get it. Get us into a Dyson sphere. Get us into a you know something that takes production off planet. Then yeah, that's all quite feasible. But you know, is the are we at the right timing? And one of the you know you know I'm a, a bit of a Musk fan when it comes to space. I want to see a colony on Mars as soon as possible. Yeah, can, can, Musk, because I want can to... Musk go there? Yeah. Can, can he be one of the first ones? Well, that's the thought. He, he, he says he does. He wants to die on Mars, just not on impacts, and I can understand that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I, want, I want to have a colony on there for the same reason that I wanted to have monks in the, in the Dark Ages because they maintained the knowledge that uh, we lost during the Dark Ages and we could be rebuilt again. And, I, you know, frankly, that's my attitude. We're going to stuff it up here. And, and that's attitudes like that, if that's the popular attitude of a, of a, a multi-billionaire in America, then we, I think we are cooked. It's a bit sad, isn't it? It's like you, you just imagine, and I don't think he's a, uh, an overweight man with a cigar, but you sort of picture an overweight man with a cigar counting his money saying, yes, let's do more of it, let's do more. Uh, it seems like that, doesn't it? Irrespective of yeah, the it was Walt Disney. Michael. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it, we're did, very Walt Disney. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, there we are, back in America as well. So, uh, look, he's also saying that you know, if we and I guess it's if we accept that technology will drive us forward as it has done in the past, then we really don't need any systems to control it because the market will control all of that and anything which gets in the way is stopping this uh, this this optimism from from living itself out. So we'll look at that when we come back on the Debunking Economics podcast uh, with me and Steve Keen back in a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. We are talking techno-optimism on the podcast this week. Mark Anderson, a software engineer in America, also, you know, a bit of a billionaire, 
uh, if you could just be a bit of a billionaire, actually he's almost a two billionaire, uh, he's written this blog piece about how we need techno-optimism because that is what will deliver our way forward and make everyone very wealthy and, uh, you know, with plentiful uh, supplies of everything we need because we are greedy people and we want more. Actually, even even just as a foundation piece there, Steve, I actually, I don't know whether it's a factor of age or not being American, I actually don't want more. I don't feel as though I need too much. I get to birthdays and people say, what do you want for your birthday? And I go, I can't think of anything, really. <laughs> don't. I've got everything I need. Uh, buy me a new jumper, perhaps. You know, it's, I mean, this idea that we are always striving for more, is that, I mean, that might have been the case at a time when we that things were less plentiful. But has it run its course in the West, I wonder? Potentially, but I think at the, like at the same time, if you if you got the sort of wealth he's talking about, then you know you want to buy a yacht, you go buy a yacht. Mm. It's uh, so that the fact that you don't have constraints is partly where that sense of insatiability comes from, yeah, and that's why you see this looting. A lot of yeah. effort having but, a yacht. There, you've got to have someone. You've got to get a crew. You've got to make sure that it, you know you're getting all the barnacles off it. Seems like look, a, lot there's of, a classic- lot of work, Steve. Well, there's a classic old joke about that. You might hear about an economist uh, finding himself in a Greek island and finding sitting down at a tavern and next to a fisherman who's sitting there drinking some retsina. And uh, and, he, and he says, oh, why are you here? He says, I've just finished work. He said, but if you work longer, you could have more than one boat. What would I do with more than one boat? Well, you hire people to do the work for you. And what would you do if you hired the work to do the work exactly. for you? He said, well, you could, you could, you could get to, you could relax more easily. He said, well, I'm doing that now. Exactly. Um, yeah. So you, you know, so so long as you cover you know fundamental needs, then you don't have a sense of hunger uh, driving you to to want more. But and so you and I are the sort of moderately comfortable balance in the middle. We've got a comfortable enough lifestyle. We're not starving, um, but we, we're we're not capable of imagining some of the uh, extra consumption that somebody like Andreessen takes as second nature. So there is a sort of you know, a smooth spot which the middle class in the West uh, is is capable of enjoying these days. And what, you know, and what, is it that, what is it that drives life? Actually, it's not abundance, is it? It's relationships, actually. You know, last mm. weekend yeah. uh, I caught up with a, a bunch of mates I went to college with 38 years ago, uh, some of them hadn't seen mm. for 38 years, uh, you know, we had a couple of beers, maybe four, uh, I think maybe, mm. maybe six actually in total. Uh, anyway, who's counting? I am, obviously. Uh, and then we went for an Indian, <laughs> went for an Indian meal. Uh, we had a fantastic time. Uh, yeah, yeah, better than yeah. better than sitting on a yacht somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean, to be quite honest with you. So it's, it, it does all get down to, uh, you know, uh, relationships at the end of the day. And I think he might have missed that point as well, perhaps because he hasn't, maybe hasn't got very meaningful relationships. I'm sure he has, but didn't seem to see it as part of his theory. But he says, in terms of getting back to the main point, invention. There is no material problem, whether created by nature or by technology, that cannot be solved with more technology. We had a problem of starvation, so we invented the Green Revolution. We had a problem of darkness, so we invented electric lighting. We had a problem of cold, so we invented indoor heating. We had a problem with heat, so we invented air conditioning. We had a problem of isolation, so we invented the Internet. We had a problem of pandemics, so we invented vaccines. And then he says we had a problem of poverty, so we invent technology to create abundance. Now, he's very much against any system interfering, any governments, you know, it should all be free market. But this issue of abundance and poverty hasn't been fixed by technology, has it? I mean, there's still a lot of very poor people in the world, 
even though there might be a lot of abundance, but we've not been very good at distribution. Technology hasn't fixed that as- aspect of it. No, and that's well and truly the case. And that's where you, you think, I mean, hello, what planet are you on? Mm. Um, so the, the, you know, we all rely upon our, you're talking about relying upon the internet for communications. And there are people who are buying and you know, digging the cobalt out of mines in the Congo where, uh, you know, I don't think they regard themselves as enjoying abundance. So the distribution is, is one of these things that, you know, market optimists wave their hands about it and say, well, let's solve it by more growth. But, you know, you've got a long way to go when there are 3 billion people who uh, still remain in fairly obvious poverty and are driven to want more because they certainly aren't getting enough now. So that's what, when Kate Rawa talks about the donut, they're people whose lifestyles are in the hole of the donut. They haven't yet made it to this, to the sustainable stage. And if we've taken a quarter of a millennium to get there, then it's pretty bloody slow Mm. uh, given the rate of technological progress. So to dismiss uh, distribution um, is, is a sign again of techno fantasy, not techno optimism. Yeah. And the role of the state in all of it. So I'm, you know, not a big supporter uh, of uh, Chinese communism, but you could say, well, okay, there's what, 800 million people lifted out of poverty since the, the late 70s through sort of quasi-capitalism. Uh, you know, but the state played a, you know, a large part in, in that happening. And yet here yeah, he is saying it's yeah. all got to be free market. We, we have we had this idealized vision of what the free market is. It's, we have a fantasy of the free market versus what it's to some degree of reality of what states can be like, good and bad states, mainly bad ones. But like the, that's why I think you know, there's just too much fantasy. Like looking looking uh, through his other parts of the uh, the manifesto, uh, there are a couple of you know obvious red flags for me. For example, the economist William Nordhaus mm. has shown that creators of technology. We're only to capture, able to capture about 2% of the economic value that created by that technology. You won't reference William Nordhaus for anything. You're in deep, deep trouble. Yeah. And also, we believe in David Ricardo's concept of comparative advantage, which only works if capital is malleable, if you can use a blast furnace to make a cappuccino. Uh, that is nonsense. And we believe the market sets wages as a function of the marginal productivity of the worker. That is, technically speaking, crap. Uh, and, and that's been a part of my economic analysis to, is to show that marginal productivity theory of income distribution is nonsense. And and this, but that's this is what comes out of the belief in neoclassical economics. It comes out and says capitalism is a meritocracy. You get paid what you're worth. And and uh, we were speaking with Nick Hanau, you know, just what last week. And Nick is the opposite, saying, you know, he realizes he's made his wealth partly out of his own skills, but partly also out of luck and timing. Mm. And in no way that he regards his, he said he's getting far more than his marginal product. I'm pretty certain Andreessen is as well. The whole idea that workers get paid what their marginal contribution is, is a fantasy uh, coming out of neoclassical economics. So, But, but I mean, uh, back to that Nordhaus yeah. point, I mean, maybe, I, I mean, there is a point there, and I know how much I hate the guy, and he's done some crazy yeah. maths in terms of climate. But this idea of, um, you know, of, of social surplus, so if uh, if you yeah, create... That's a, fair, that's, yeah. You only get, you only yeah. get a, a slice. So, you know, the internet has created massive return. Well, actually, obviously, it started from the public sector, but... You know, but I, I, I mean, he did work. You know, the the guy Anderson himself did work in, in creating web browsers. 
the money he's yeah. made from that, and obviously, you know, the, his early Mosaic browser really set the standard that everyone else has followed from. He's only seen a right. slice of the benefit that that has created to society. And that's so, quite true. I'm just saying, if you're going to if you're going to reference if you're going to reference anybody about this, for Christ's sake, don't reference Nordhaus. See, the guy makes <laughs> up his own numbers. Yeah. So um, that, 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 that this is why there's a lack a lack of. There's an optimism without critical foundations. There are some parts where, where, where you know he's quite valid, but a lot of this stuff comes out of swallowing a neoclassical textbook, and that's an extremely bad way to improve your health. Yeah. Well, the idea that free markets will solve it all for the reasons that we've talked about in terms of the distribution effects, and yet he says, you know, um, you know, he's got a point on this as well. You know, the, the markets. He says free markets are the, the most effective way to organise a technological economy because of good old you know fashion supply and demand pricing, driving innovation, rather than centralised planning, which he says is doomed to failure. The system of production and consumption is too complex. So that's why you need a hybrid, isn't it? That, or that's why you need some sort of controls. I mean, the idea that, yes, yeah, well, we know central planning doesn't work. And we know also that if you start to put big projects into government hands, um, then they'll probably do the wrong project and they'll probably do it badly. Um, well, this this is this is one area where, like Avner offers a uh, recent book. I've forgotten the title right now, but Avner uh, made the point that uh, it, it, we, we've got a have got a, a stylized cartoon idea of what markets are and a stylized cartoon idea of what the government is. And we have, have corrupt governments. We have you know all sorts of hassles with market power concentration and people like Rupert Murdoch as well. Um, but Avner's point was a very simple one. If you want to say what should be public versus what should be private, you look at the time horizon over which investment is made by each group and say, if something has a payback that, that occurs within the payback period expected by capitalists, that's a good thing for the private sector to control. If you're talking about something which doesn't have a payback period for five or 10 times the time horizon of a capitalist, that's a good thing for us to control collectively through the state doing it. Mm. And uh, and that means like things like sewerage and the UK is a classic example of that right now. You want to get sick, go for a swim in a, in a UK river because you've privatised the sewerage systems. Um, and the investment horizon to get returns out of maintaining sewerage systems is 10, 15, 25 years. That's too long for the manager in charge. They don't do it. The sewerage system breaks down. You get shit in your rivers. Um, so look on the bright side, Steve. At least it's warming up those rivers. You can go swimming in winter That's now. true. Yeah, yeah. You can even walk across them, I've heard told yeah um so so this this is the you know the issue it's just let's bring some realism to how we talk about both the state and the markets and what i see here is fantasy not reality well this idea that technology will solve all of our problems i mean there's one problem with that isn't there if you believe that climate change is an issue and you believe that uh, you know this rise in temperatures needs to be controlled and you believe that we are close to a tipping point in all of that then why would governments need to intervene and say, OK, we reach, need to reach net zero by 2050? Why wouldn't technology have taken that us in that direction? Technology might help us get there, but technolo technologists weren't there saying, OK, this is a problem that we can fix because uh, yeah. they're not focused on that because they're focused on stuff that's going to make them money. Uh, you, we, you necessarily have a, a local focus and... Uh, and and a limited focus when you're going to be developing technology. You, you know, what can I do in my local 
region if you're talking farming what can i do for my what, what can i sell into the existing market in the country i'm in and so on uh you don't have a holistic view mm. and and the whole idea you imagine that you can you know your and also like if you think about what goes in in competition uh you, you every firm in a market hopes to become the bigger than it currently is so what do they do they invest more uh, than is required for the service of that particular market. Now, partly that's where the creativity of capitalism comes from. You don't compete on price, you compete on the diversity of the products you're producing. Uh, so the evolutionary process that gives us change over time comes out of people trying to capture each individual in a market, trying to capture them far more than they've currently got as a market share. That's an essential driver of that evolutionary development of technology over time. But it also means that you, you are... But you, you know, you're, you're putting more of a load on the planet than the planet can cope with. This is all okay. This sort of thinking is all okay back in the time that Bormel referred to as cowboy, the cowboy capitalism, when you had the vast open plains and you could expand across them, ignoring the little troubling thing like Indians, of course. Um, but that capacity to expand into open spaces uh, meant you could do whatever you liked, and that was the, the free level of control. We're now in spaceship Earth, and if you shit too much on the spaceship, you're going to make it uninhabitable for the other occupants, including yourself. So mm. it's, it's it's a mentality coming out of cowboy but, capitalism. Right, but I'm sure out, he would, out of the, right, but I'm sure he would say, well, actually, uh, we may not be able to solve the problem. We may not be able to mitigate the problem. Uh, but we can create technology that will help us deal with the consequences, at least in North America. So better air conditioning systems or better buildings that are able to withstand the floods and the, uh, you know, all the extreme weather events, you know, that uh, the technology will help us cope with it rather than preventing it, which is the way well, we tend to go at things, isn't it? Yeah, well, that, that's where you, you start thinking, uh, you know, you, you this puny little creature on the surface of, of the planet thinking they can control the forces of the planet itself uh when they've set those forces up to to you know, have triggered the chipping points which are going to make this much more chaotic uh, what was the, the name of that storm that came through uh mexico just recently where it was predicted by all the all the models um and and past experience as well to remain a tropical storm and in 12 hours it turned from a tropical storm to a category five cyclone yeah now the, the force levels involved in that are just beyond anything humans can hope to contain. And we've put ourselves into a planet where that's happening by using too much energy, by pushing technology too far without being uh, respecting the boundaries. The fact that the biosphere is a very, very thin layer around a, a very small planet. Um, mm. And, you know, we, we, we if we're going to do that, we're going to be techno-optimists, we're going to get off the planet first. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, we'll, we'll stuff the planet up and then leave. That seems to be the, uh, the the approach, doesn't it? So we can be a small speck on another planet and go and stuff that one up. But the um, this idea that all of this can be done uh, without coordination, that free market is going to sort all of that out. So I'll give you an example of a question I asked a couple of weeks ago. I was, um, I was um, hosting a panel with a, a bunch of people renewable energy providers this was in paris and they're all mm. sort of pursuing their own ambitions their own plans which they all said is going to help us get towards you know the zero uh, net zero target by 2050 so there were hydrogen companies there were biomass providers wind companies a company that was providing all the you know plug-in points for electric cars 
and I asked the question which no one could answer. I said, so you're all doing this. You're all helping strive towards net zero. So what happens if you all collectively do the best you can for the profit that you can make out of it and you help us get to 60% of the target? Who's actually there to coordinate to say that we've reached 80, 100% of what we need to do? Because you're all doing your own bit. And, mm. uh, and the answer was, well, it's obviously for governments to coordinate that. You know, and then the question is, well, how do they do that? Do they say, well, okay, mm. you need to do more to reach the target? Because that's not happening. So you've got, so with, and, and then they're admitting that there needs to be coordination beyond the market if we're going to reach this goal. Whereas Anderson is saying, no, the market's going to look after all of this. Uh, you know, you don't, need, yeah. you don't need the government to step in. How do you know the whole job yeah. will be done if the government doesn't step in? How do you, you've got to you've got to have a capacity of looking down at the at the you know the whole system rather than thinking the parts can take care of themselves and uh, and and this is the the weakness of this attitude. You need both the whole and the parts. You need a you need a, a whole that provides your uh, knows what your physical limits are, and that's you know I, I once I'd rather have scientists working out than bloody Donald Trump, obviously. And unfortunately, our political system selects Donald Trump rather than politicians, well, rather can. than scientists. Mm. But yeah, we, we need we need to say, okay, this we know what the what capacity the planet can take. That's where Tom Murphy's little analogy about the, the impact of if we continue growing at two point three percent, we're going to hit a hundred degrees Fahrenheit, Celsius. Uh, temperature in, in just four centuries. That so says, well, there's your there's your boundaries, guys and gals, and you have to work within them. And by looking at the collective activity, we're en route to to push that push that boundary. We have to behave collectively somehow. And the question of how we did you know, the, the the democratic method certainly hasn't been effective at letting us control that. But you have to think at the level of a system rather than thinking you can leave all the individual parts to do whatever they wanted to do. The only prospect for that the individuals doing whatever they want is when this occurs when you know we're off planet and we treat this um planet as the as the we know the origin of life and we have to respect life and let life continue evolving and growing and 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 that's what you you don't see any of that in andreson's uh manifesto it's all about humanity and uh you know we'll we'll take care of the animals we we are unfortunately doing quite that yeah so uh, and we are going to uh, speed up accelerate this this progress driven by this uh enthusiasm for technology doing more and we're going to get smarter doing it maybe people are not going to get smarter because you've already mentioned people vote for donald trump but we mm. um, but we we've got artificial intelligence coming along which he calls our philosopher's stone we are literally making sand think i mean could ai solve some of our problems is ai i mean this is probably a discussion in it's on its own for for another day mm. and i have to say i'm a little bit confused about the uh, what it is going to contribute but it, I mean, it, it clearly will speed things up. We will be able to do more thinking faster. So from from that point of view, it is a benefit to society. Yeah, I mean, I my attitude AI comes down to the question of whether you can actually have uh, AI that's not artificial intelligence but artificial imagination. And this is the defining difference between what we currently call AI and what is actually human intelligence. Humans and can imagine things that don't exist. Uh, or can you know, contemplate uh, 
processes that don't ha- yet happen. Uh, and so if I, I, I'll be, I'll think there'll be artificial intelligence when I see a computer think up something that never existed before, or, or you know, solve solve a, a dilemma in. Uh, if a computer could work out how to reconcile uh, general relativity with quantum mechanics, then that'd be the point at which you say, okay, we've got artificial intelligence. At the moment, we have artificial processing power. But nothing like. There's no way that I regard any that I've anything I've seen in in computing so far as having imagination. Mm, interesting point. That is a discussion, isn't it, for another day? So, uh, just in grounding this off, I suspect uh, you might be uh, one of Anderson's enemies because he says, you know, that they they are all for growth. Their enemy is anti-merit, anti-ambition. Well, that's not you. Anti-striving, anti-achievement, anti-greatness. I don't think that's you. Most of it's me. Uh, but um, the enemy is deceleration, degrowth, depopulation, the nihilistic wish so trendy amongst our elites for fewer people, less energy, and more suffering and death. Because apparently fewer people and less energy equals more suffering and death, more people, more energy, obviously means less suffering and fewer deaths. I think it's going to cause many, many more deaths, and this is why the climate scientists I know and you know, com- communicate with fairly regularly these days are terrified because we think we're going to have an enormous number of deaths coming out of technological, bli- um, not 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 blindness, but technological delusionness. And by having a deluded attitude, the capacity to continue growing at the rate we are on the planet on which we exist, we're going to see billions of deaths occur courtesy of this techno optimism. And he'll be blaming on the people who are trying to stop his his mob destroying life on the planet. And this is that the inability to see that there, you know, that there's a, a biosphere that we are seriously damaging. And if we continue damaging it, we won't be able to be technological, and we'll take out a large part of the life on the planet in the process. And this this belief that the others was it's basically saying somebody who's telling us to slow down as we're approaching a brick wall is dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, it's called the Techno Optimist Manifesto. It's freely available. It's on his Substack, amongst other places. Also, his his company's uh, website has got it there as well. I think if you just search his name, Mark Anderson, and the Techno Optimist Manifesto, you'll be able to find a copy. Have a look and see what you think. Uh, but we've got Steve's views, uh, and uh, yeah, I think. Some good stuff, but a lot of rubbish is basically what you're saying. Pretty much. And, far, and the rubbish is far more dangerous than the good stuff. Good. We'll catch you again next week. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, mate. Bye. I don't think Mr. Andreessen will be convinced somehow, but, you know, when you've got loads of money, you don't have to listen to anybody else. Uh, that's it for this week. I'm Phil Dobby, back again with another edition of the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve next week. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. The Debunking Economics Podcast. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.